Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. We have with us today Jeremy Au, an investor and the chief of staff at Monks Hill Ventures. How are you doing today, Jeremy? Amazing. Got to play with the kids a little bit in the morning. Got to read the newspaper while hanging out with them, you know. Uh, and then, you know, worked out a little bit, and then now I'm here. So what's your workout? Ah, you know, it's just very generic, kind of like, you know, dumbbell press, dumbbell row, you know, your little weight rack. And then, you know, you feel good about it. You hit your 30 minutes, you know, your Apple Watch is good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, good job. And I'm like, okay, I did my job for my health today. And uh, so it's, it's so interesting you said the Apple Watch thing, right? I wear an Apple Watch as well. It tracks all my fitness stuff. I go for like a 6K run every day when I'm here yeah. in Fukuoka. And every day at the same point in my run, because I normally use the same path, I get this little notification, right? Exactly. And I always yeah. check it. And then I'm like, okay, it's the same thing every single day. Why am I checking <laughs> this? Why do I care? <laughs> because it's praise, right? That's what I get. It's like, oh, you hit 30 minutes of activity. That's your goal. Congratulations, right? I mean, maybe. You know, I'm a sucker for praise, like just like every <laughs> other human, right? You know? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> okay, look, before we get into the main part of this conversation, let's get a little bit more of your background just for some context, yeah? Yeah, uh, happy to share. You know, I grew up in Singapore, Army, UC Berkeley, studying technology, economic, and business. I was a consultant at Bain uh, across Southeast Asia and China on consumer and tech. Uh, and then I built my first company, which was uh, a social enterprise, which was a consultancy for the social sector, uh, bootstrapped, profitable, over 100 clients. Uh, eventually, I left, I handed over to my co-founder to do my Harvard MBA. And then after that, there I built a second company in education tech, grew that out uh, to millions of dollars of revenue, pre-seed, seed, series A, and eventually sold the company. And then uh, moved back to Singapore uh, and joined Monks Ventures, where I've been invested in VC over the past couple of years. And I also host the Brave Southeast Asia Tech Podcast, www.bravesea.com, which is uh, has over 20,000 monthly listeners. So that's a little bit of myself. Uh, happy to chat more. And a nice little plug at the end there. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's like being on Johnny Carson in the 1970s. It's beautiful. <laughs> Talk to me about yeah. this company that you built, Cozy Kin. I'm really curious about it. And and more curious about the stuff that you learned by building it than yeah. actually the outcome of selling it to higher ground. Although I'm curious yeah. how that went as well, right? Because I think it's a big experience yeah. and something that most people don't really understand. Just like the intricacies of taking something literally from zero to one. Yeah. Well, I think from zero to one was that what I learned was that it's really hard. Yeah. And it's much harder than, you know. I mean, I, I think I remember at university, I, you know, I watched like Social Network. <laughs> I don't remember that movie about Mark Zuckerberg on Facebook. <laughs> and it was like, I mean, I know it's supposed to be a parable on like, you know, sacrifice and so, so forth. But when you're like a young person, you're like, wow, this is inspirational, right? You know, so. Yeah, but they also show him in his dorm room, right? Just sitting at his computer in the dark coding. Yeah. And then just yeah. things just like clicking, 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 clicking. Yeah. This never happens. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I thought I've always been somebody who has been, you know, entrepreneurial in the sense that not necessarily be an entrepreneur, but very much like, hey, if there's a problem, let's go fix it. And then if it doesn't exist, let's go figure out a way how to do it, right? And I think that was in the military, that was at, you know, as a management consultant with my first company. Uh, but I think this time around, it was just building for, I think, a simple problem, which was, I think, the lack of like great quality childcare, right, um, in the US. And so I think for us as a team, you know, we came together and we had a mission to say, like, how do we make this better? How do we set up? Uh, eventually what became 
you know, a series of, you know, you call them nanny sharing, but also like micro daycares effectively in people's homes, right? Yeah. And I thought it was an interesting experience because I think for me, what I realized, and I think there were three lessons, right? First of all, it's really hard. Um, and it's not just hard because it does a lot of work, right? Because the truth is, <laughs> you know, even in the army, there's a lot of work, right? Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. All, you know, you get through it. You know exactly what you need to do. The problem is, I mean, there's a lot of work and you don't know what needs to be done and you're just figuring all that stuff out and you're on your own. It's like, I don't know, it's like being dropped off in the middle of a jungle and you're like, yeah, you know, it's a long walk, but the problem is which direction do which, you go, right? Which direction do I go in? Can I share a exactly. little story with you? One of yeah, my friends from high school actually went to the Air Force Academy. Yeah. And the summer before they actually enter school, they do survival training. Yeah. And he said to me, they take your, they give you your shoes, but they take your shoelaces away. Yeah. You can wear your pants and your shirt, but they take your belt away. And they drop you in the middle of the woods with no, with nothing. All right. And you have to find your way back. Exactly. And I think that's the same feeling. You're, you're right that building a startup from zero to one is super hard. And you're just not sure what the right direction is. Yeah. Yeah. What do I do? Exactly. It's hard. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I interrupted you. No, I think it's perfect, right? Because you know you got to build from zero to one from a company perspective. But, you know, zero to one implies like a linear path, right? You know, <laughs> it's like not you said, in, in a jungle, is like north, south, east, west. There's a river, there's a swamp, you know, where do you go? How fast do you go? And there's alligator, exactly, right? And so I think I remember I was like reading the books, like zero to one, but, you know, zero to one is just so hard. Um, and I think I was really uh, benefited, I think, of having eventually meeting solid co-founders who, you know, we sat down and said, okay, let's figure this out. And the truth is, you know, coming up with, you know, the idea in that sense was actually a series of co-founders, right? Different founders that you sit down and, they're effectively dating each other in a sense that, you know, do I like to work with you and do you like to work with me, right? Um, and so there's a series of dynamics where all of that is happening. So I think, first of all, I think uh, being a founder is really, really hard. I think the second thing that I realized uh, was that I think there's a lot of theory and there's a lot of advice that you get. And the other day, it's just like, what do you do? And, you know, some advice works in some aspects and some advice works in other aspects. But at the end of the day, you just got to do it, right? Yeah. Can you think of any advice that you were given that you just thought that's ridiculous? And even from a person who, there are so many people who present themselves as advisors, particularly in the startup space, that have no idea what they're talking about. At least this has been my experience, yeah? So do you have any examples of advice that was given to you that was just so bad? It, it wasn't bad in this case, but I think it was very uh, dialed in, right? Uh, into the point of view. So this advice... You know, eventually, actually, we had started out, you know, looking at mental health care. And yeah. so we were looking at depression. Yeah. And so this team was looking at how do we, you know, reduce depression and stress and so, so forth. And we basically isolated it to like three major populations that we felt like had a very high incidence of depression or risk. And so for one of them was students, right? You know, so kind of like going through teenage years, adolescence, but also a change environment, life stage, inflection point. Second group is what I call like dealing with some four level of trauma or grief. So you can subdivide that into people who lost a loved one recently. So you can call that grief. Uh, but the other aspect was like, you know, first responders and people who are dealing with some level of trauma, right? Every so, day, yeah. Um, and so that's, a, I think, a very strong cluster, right, of uh, issues. And the third actually cluster that we saw was really kind of like um, mothers with postpartum depression, right? And so, you know, it's a common story about how I think that a lot of mothers after giving birth, you know, they really struggle, right? In terms yeah. of career, personal life, support. And so they classify as, you know, postpartum depression. 
And you know, I think one of the biggest issues, you know, was that you know, that in the U.S. that isn't, you know, federal, you know, maternity leave, let alone paternity leave. You know, there's a lot of stress. There's not a lot of family support. You know, there's a lot of gaps in the system that makes it. And so, postpartum depression, if you sit down, is like you know, highly correlated with being poor, highly correlated losing your job. You know, and all these other aspects that are pretty straightforward in the sense that, um, you know, if you don't have quality childcare then you don't feel like you can go back to work. And if you don't feel like you can go back to work, how do you make money for your family? And all these kind of like stresses kicked in. And um, I think the advice that kind of kicked in, I remember the doctor was kind of saying like, okay, well, you know, if all these moms are really stressed out about the lack of childcare and the inability to go back to work as a result, let's look at putting together like self-help groups to accept the fact that there isn't childcare and there's, you know, it's hard to go back to work. And right. That made total sense if you're a doctor, right? Because as a doctor, you're a medical system. You're like, let's do self-help groups and you know, people can talk to each other and they can be peer counselors to each other to accept the fact that they're not going back to work because there's no childcare. Right. And there was, I was like, why don't we just get childcare? Yeah. Why don't we just sense. fix childcare? Then they'll be less stressed out. Right. And then, then we won't need they the wouldn't have postpartum depression, right? You right. know, <laughs> you know, I'm just saying, I mean, you know, not everybody has postpartum depression because of childcare, but a very right. big subset is a driver of the distress. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't bad advice. It was just like, cause it's dialed in, from a medical perspective, right? And so um, for me, it was very much like, okay, how do we kind of like look at it differently? Talk to me about the sale. So what are the reflections that you had after being acquired? I mean, you built this really great company, you built it to a decent revenue level. What What were your feelings about after being acquired and what was that experience like? It's a humbling experience um, and it's not an easy one uh, because you know, you have a set of identity, right? As a founder yep. uh, of having been in charge and building. And now you are, you know, part of a larger organization and your job is to kind of like integrate the product, you know, replicate this and so, so forth. And I think it's both a relief, but also a big identity shift, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you're a founder and now you're an employee, right? And so the good thing about being an employee is that, you know, you, you don't worry as much stuff, right? You don't worry about fundraising and Salaries. all these other aspects. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Now he's just focusing on just the product. But yeah, it's, it's, it does feel like a bit of a loss, right? And so there's, I think, definitely a lot of grief that happens there. I think that's where I think for me, it felt like the sense of mission and stewardship is really important. Yeah. Um, because I think if your little bit identity is a little bit more close to the company of being someone who's in charge, I think that's the hardest part. But if you think about it, it's like, hey, this is really about a product and making sure that, you know, people continue to be able to access that, um, that we continue to work with regulators, right, across uh, multiple states, right, to legalize um, this form and approach, right, yeah. uh, of micro daycares and learning pods. And eventually, you know, it became a huge success in the sense that, you know, this was eventually became very pivotal during the COVID pandemic, right? Um, Completely. Micro learning groups, you know, pods, what we want to call them, but, you know, we were able to help legalize that with multiple states, right? And I think that was a beautiful moment where kind of like the legacy of our work continued into it. It was interesting. Uh, I think one other thing I also think about quite a bit about was like, you know, I was home a lot more with my wife, you know, and, you know, I think it was an interesting transition, right? Because I think you have this professional identity and now you're suddenly having this personal identity where, you know, you're like home (laughs) And and you're home with your wife and your home with yourself, right? Yeah. And so there's this interesting dynamic where 
you know, you have all these kind of like conversations um, that you got to have. Right? What inspired you to come back to Singapore? You know, you were educated in the States, you built something in the States. What was the inspiration to come home? I think it was a function of both push and pull, frankly. Uh, for me, you know, I always wanted to come back uh, to Singapore and Southeast Asia. Uh, it's home. My family is here. Many of my friends are here. Uh, so I think it was very much uh, a dynamic where I wanted to be home, right? And the second part is that I did want to kind of like eventually raise my own family. And I felt like raising that family in Southeast Asia with family would be important and you know, honestly, it would be a joy to do that with my extended family, you know, with my sister, with my parents, you know, I didn't want to do it by myself yeah. in some other city. I mean, you could, you know, but still, I think to me in my mind's eye, that felt like the ideal, right? Uh, but we did also have a push dynamic as well. You know, I remember the simple dynamic where in March, I basically, you know, had been tracking the news in China, you know, across Europe. And then I remember, you know, had that stockpile uh, in March, my wife is like, what's going on, right? You know, I had a surgical mask. I had the last stock of N95 masks. Right. I had the toilet paper. I had the food. And I was like, yeah, you know, we're in New York City. You know, we live near Columbus Circle. We're in the densest part of town in the densest city in the world. And, you know, 46% of New Yorkers don't have health insurance. Right. And we're in the you know, apartment block with like thousands of people in it. And the laundry is downstairs, you know. It, you know, and I was just like, I don't feel like this is going to go well it's right now. And my wife, yeah, and my wife was like, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, my company HR will tell me there's a problem, you know, and I was like, eh, this feels really bad. And so I ended up actually, um, frankly, uh, convincing my wife to take a two week holiday uh, in Singapore, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we you know we had two young kittens that were being taken care of by our neighbor. My you know, so we did our two week thing, and and I packed. You know, she packed like a carry on, and I packed a bit more. I had a carry <laughs> on, and, and one no, one luggage. You know, I want you know that check in, and then obviously things went terribly. Obviously in April, May, June, yeah. Um, and, you know, this at some level, it was just like, hey, you know, we got to make a decision, right? We're just, we're back in Singapore. And now the conversation is, do you want to keep going to Singapore or do you want to go back to America, right? Right. And I think that decision that we had was like, hey, you know, we're also going to have a kid along the way now. Um, you know, let's just make our decisions. And I think it was a very deep and thorough conversation, right? Because, yeah. you know, it impacts our career, it impacts our life, it impacts the family we want to build together, it impacts our kids' lives. So I think that was really a dynamic where we said, okay, you know, let's just stay um, in Singapore and Southeast Asia. And I think it's worked out tremendously. We're very happy now as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I've already, I made my bet 30-something years ago. I, yeah. I, every time I talk to someone like you, I just think my first time in Singapore was December of 1990. Yeah. Singapore was born in 1965. Yeah. And so was I. And yeah. when I think about it in those terms, if I were Singaporean, I would look at where yeah. it was in 1965 right. and where it is today and all the transitions right. that it's been through, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. from really like a fishing village into right. a manufacturing economy, into a knowledge economy, and now into right. one of the biggest financial centers in the world. Right. You just must have this incredible pride of being Singaporean <laughs> and being able to come home to a place that's that great must yeah. have been amazing. No? 
I think is a privilege, right? Uh, and I share yeah. that. It's like, you know, I had a choice between America or Singapore, right? And you look at GDP per capita, yeah, yeah. Singapore is the same as the US, right? Basically. Yeah. And so I wasn't, um, you know, in a position where there's a trade-off or sacrifice in a, in a, in a macro sense. No. Uh, but it became very much more a decision on a personal basis. Um, and so I think, yeah, I, I think uh, people in Singapore really have it uh, lucky, you know, um, in that sense, because, you know, you can be in, you know, you can be a great person, but if you don't have access to opportunity or systems or resources, then you're stuck. Right. Yeah. Um, and I always tell people, it's like, you know, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a blessing to really have that where you can be talented and you can have access to the network, the community to make things happen. Yeah. When I first moved to Bangkok in 2011 and 2012, I became an LP in Ardent Capital. And the Ardent guys literally had just sold their company to Living Social for what was back then a real decent amount of money, right? And they yeah. took some of that money and just created a fund. Yeah. And they went out and tried to find all, they had a thesis about what they wanted to invest in, what was necessary in Southeast Asia. Mm. And they were frustrated by the lack of great companies in which they could invest. Plus they missed the itch of building. Mm -hmm. Right, so you can see all these all these topics, right, that come together when you go from being a founder, which, like you said, at the beginning is kind of directionless. There's north, south, east, and west. You're in the middle of a forest. You don't know what you're supposed to do. The VC is kind of like the flip side of that as well. But I'm just curious, like, what that transition was like for you. Mm. And at the end of that, do you ever miss like building something on your own? Do you ever see something and go, I could do that? Do you know what I mean? Yes, you know, I do miss uh, building. Uh, and yet, I think there are also, you know, the realization that there is different seasons in your life. Right? So I think for me, what has been easy about a transition is that I've always loved coaching, right? Um, I've always been someone that's been focused on professional development. In the army, in university, I was always the person who was, you know, coaching or teaching. I taught a class, you know, uh, in undergrad, right? Um, you know, I at Bain, I was helping out uh, as, you know, answering questions for other folks, trying to be helpful and so forth. And I think I really enjoyed, you know, when I was building out my first company, the social enterprise. Uh, you know, I built the whole syllabus, you know, I built a training. I was very engaged on the coaching side. Yeah. Uh, and same thing when I was building my company again, the second time around, I really enjoyed that dynamic of coaching. And so I think that's been a skill set that I think was somewhat valued in a startup world because obviously it's part of management skill set, but it's valued in a much more external way uh, in venture capital, right? Because, you know, in, in startup land, Coaching is one of the forms of leadership, but it's not necessarily the only form of leadership to get the outcomes you need to have. Yeah. Versus in venture capital, coaching is actually the only modality that you really have um, to support founders, right? And that attracts founders to come in. So I think that's been nice and easy from a skill set perspective. But I think what's been hard, I would say, is you know, it does feel like the same spot, but two different roles, right? I always give it like kind of like playing football, like a player turned coach, like like to be a great coach, you don't need to be a player, but there are many great coaches who have been players, right? And they bring they, their skill set, their approach. But yeah, it does feel different, right? Because it's the same game. And I think what's really important is that the transition from a player to coach is you miss the game and you have to be very careful to not let your own personal experience of being a player be the only form of experience that a player can be, right? So yeah. I think that's that 
part that you have to shed. But yeah, you miss the game. But because you miss the game, you love the game. Because loving something and missing something at the same time is the same feeling, actually, right? I always say you can't be great at something unless you really, really care about it. You can be good at exactly. it. You can be good at it, but exactly. you can't be great at it. Yeah, so sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Exactly, right? And so I think there's nothing wrong with missing um, entrepreneurship because then it also shows that you love it. It's just that you just have that, you know, take a step back and to say like, what's my season right now in life? And I think that's how I think about it. Right. So you also work at one of the most prominent venture capital companies in Southeast Asia with some great founders of that firm as well, which means you get a real bird's eye view of what's happening in the whole region. Maybe you can give us a little bit of an overview of just the whole VC landscape in Southeast Asia and how it's yeah. different maybe from some other regions in the world. Yeah, venture capital, you know, it's about building the future, right? So founders are building future and venture capital is about financing and investing in these founders to take on that future. And so the question then becomes, what is the future to be built, right? And I think in Southeast Asia, there's a lot of future to be built. And what I mean by that is, you know, of course, you know, people are looking at, you know, nuclear fusion, chat GPT, there's all these dynamics, obviously, in from a US perspective that is at a cutting edge of science, right? And it's going to transform not just America, but the rest of the world as well. Is this that in Southeast Asia, the fundamental infrastructure uh, and things that we take for granted in developed countries that have not yet been built, right? Um, and that ranges all the way from, you know, kind of like infrastructure all the way to B2B software as a service. There's all these things that we know have already been happening um, in China, in the US, in Europe that are currently still being built. And so there's a lot of future to be built in Southeast Asia. I think that's the exciting part. Uh, and to me, I think, uh, that has been really kind of like chicken soup for the soul here, which is that, you know, by being part of venture capital landscape and investing, you know, you're really making and transforming millions of lives for the better because now they're going to get access to technology and a way of life that wasn't available before. I think what the difficult part that does come in is that, you know, uh, Southeast Asia is not America as not the EU, right? Um, it's, you know, ASEAN 6 and, you know, you know, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines. These are six different countries that are very different, with very different histories, with very different economies, right? Yeah. Uh, and I always tell a little bit, you know, it reminds me a little bit of like Europe before the EU, right? Which has worked hard to harmonize regulation and there's free flow of people. So there's a little bit of a homogenization process in Europe that makes it easier from a single common market, right? Right. Um, and that doesn't really happen in Southeast Asia, right? Um, and so I think that makes it uh, tremendous in terms of like market size and how do you build a company that's large enough um, to be able to have all the economies of scale and network effects to be successful. Yeah. I mean, Germany still is not France and France is still not Spain, right? And the idea that they'll ever be the same or actually even get along in the way that they might, I think it's kind of anathema. <laughs> I actually think we have a better chance. Like there's no animosity history between Indonesia and Thailand, right? Yeah. And the idea that both of those countries are growing, that the GDP per capita are similar enough, right? Singapore is definitely the outlier, Yeah. that they're similar enough. And that no one's taking pie from other people, right? That pie is just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that's one of the great things about being out here. I'm curious if you think that there are some structural issues inside of the region as a whole or in any individual country that makes founding companies out here or scaling them harder than it might be in the United States. 
And one of the reasons why I ask you is because still some people will found a company here in this region and then just go to Silicon Valley. Mm. It still happens, right? Yeah. And I am often one of the people who recommend some founders to move to Silicon Valley as well. For example, um, there was a founder in medical tech and very much focused on commercializing something that they've done. And at some point I was just like, you know, Boston would be a great ecosystem for you <laughs> to do this because Boston has all the pharma companies, the medical tech companies, the VC funds that are built for that. You would do better, uh, not necessarily do better, but I think you would find that the cost of capital is much cheaper in Boston for your category, for example. And so I think that's kind of like a example, but I think, you know, I can take a step back. Um, the truth is venture capital has been around for like, you know, around, you know, 50 years, right, as a profession. And most of that, honestly, was in the U.S. Yeah. Venture capital uh, has very much been around in Southeast Asia for the past 10 years. 10 right? years, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I remember that when I was a founder 10 years ago for my first company, Social Enterprise, I was in the first co-working space, which was the Impact Hub Singapore. And there was an incredible group of people. I had no idea who they were, but, you know, they had Jungle Ventures was there, Golden Gate Ventures was there. Like everyone was just like a bunch of folks just figuring stuff out. And now it's fast forward 10 years, you know, now they're like, you know, the leading VC funds and so, so forth. I'm just saying that there has been less time, less maturity in the ecosystem. And this is within Singapore, right? Uh, compared to the US. And then you take a step further out, you look at, you know, countries like Vietnam or the Philippines, then the venture capital field is even earlier, right? Yeah, less mature. Less mature. And so I think what I'm trying to say here a little bit is, I think it's okay to come into these ecosystems and be like, I'm willing to understand that it's early and I'm willing to have the patience for a long period of time. And I'm going to do the work to improve the ecosystem over time. I think that's a very rational approach. It's just that if you're looking for something like you're building something that's like, I don't know, nuclear fusion, how many nuclear scientists are there in Southeast Asia? Which is, you know, uh, there are no nuclear reactors in Southeast Asia, right? So uh, by agreement, by politics and everything, it was like, we don't want nuclear reactors here. And so if that's happening, then you're not going to have the talent, but you're not going to have the venture capital or the funding structures needed to support that type of company. So I'm putting that as, as like, you know, on one end of the scale, right? But I think as we walk through this, I think we can see different industries where it's easier to do in Southeast Asia and some of them is just flat out harder to do in certain uh, Southeast Asian countries. Do you ever do this? Right, I think one of the things that founders do, and I think you said this earlier, if there's a problem, let's go fix it. There, and yeah. because we're in Southeast Asia, I don't want to say there are plenty of problems, but again, there are a lot of infrastructure things that need to be solved. And you must see problems and think, there's got to be some gal out there who can fix this. Do you ever do this in reverse? Do you know what I mean? Where you find, a, where you see a problem, you should, someone should definitely fix this and then try to go out and find that person? Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, I think we do that. I think there's an underappreciated art of venture capital um, that some research papers have talked about, but it's basically a concept of knowledge sharing, which is that at the end of the day, you know, what VCs and founders are doing in aggregate is like kind of like a discovery engine. <laughs> Basically, it's like everyone's, it's like this, you know, organism, symbiotic, where in general, we're trying to figure out what the problems are, figure out a sustainable business model, and then put the capital together to build it, right? So it's a little right. bit of a symbiotic dynamic. And uh, sometimes the founders uh, discover it first, or sometimes the VCs see the problem, and then they guide founders, right? I mean, obviously, if a founder doesn't want to do something in 
agricultural tech. They're right. They won't There's do no it. Way, they won't do it, right? But what you could be is like, if you're looking at an agricultural tech company and that tackling it in a way that's suboptimal, right? Maybe the go-to-market is a bit off. I think a founder, uh, a VC can very much be like, hey, could we just test this other experiment, this hypothesis right. that this other approach might be a better way? And the founder is the one doing all the legwork of actually testing it. But I think that's where the knowledge sharing uh, is hard to quantify, but it's a part of the work of a VC to help um, founders uh, do well. I think so too. Can we talk a little bit about not just the advice you give to the local founders, basically in any country in the region, but also some of the things you see over and over again, whether they're mistakes made or successes that you've seen, but these patterns that you like to talk about and then what you would do to disintermediate them. Yeah, I'm happy to share about what I think is the biggest success pattern. And I'm also happy to share about one of the biggest failure patterns I see in Southeast Asia. Go for it. I think in terms of success patterns, I think uh, the best ones are able to explain the problem very well and be able to rally capital, talent, and you know sponsorship uh, for that. What I mean by that is that obviously, you know, I say that everyone's like, oh, you know, every founder must be good at pitching and selling, and uh, that's true. I think what's really important is that in Southeast Asia, it, you know, it's still an emerging market. Uh, from the eyes of US and global capital. Yeah. And so being able to say like, this is not a theoretical problem. This is a problem for a specific type of person in this specific country. And being able to translate that well, where you're able to describe clearly the customer, but also the magnitude of the problem to an audience that does not live in that country actually makes it something that's worthy to emulate, right? So what I mean by that is that even in the US and you say something like childcare sucks, everyone's like, yeah, we all agree, right? It's like it's like consensus is there, right? Everybody knows that this thing is a problem, right? But if you're saying like, okay, I believe that rice farming in Indonesia, for example, I'm giving an example, yeah, yeah. is tremendously stressed and difficult because of da-da-da-da. Someone who is in a different country is going to be like, well, I'm, I don't understand rice or farming or this country. Right. So why should I care? Right. And so then the founder has to be able to translate that and explain it well. And I think the best founders are able to explain it well to themselves, to their, you know, stakeholders, to their employees. And then, you know, you know, it's easy for them to rally that capital from wherever it is in the world. So I think that's a big success pattern is being able to explain the problem while also translating it is really important. Got it. I think one big failure pattern I've seen is I think uh, unit economics uh, has been a challenge uh, across the region. So what I mean by that is that I think there are two aspects to it, right? The first part of it is that, you know, Southeast Asia is most emerging markets. So the willingness to pay in general is tight. It's right? low, yeah. It's low. And so margins are always going to be tight. It's always going to be compressed, which is totally normal, but you still can build a sizable business as long as you're doing something transformative in terms of productivity or efficiency or there's a value proposition or serving somebody who's never been served before. So that is doable. But I think we just have to be self-aware that this is where the market is. And this is not a Southeast Asia problem. This is just every other country in the world that has a GDP per capita at this level. Uh, at the same at this level, right? Which is, you know. And so I think for example, historically B2B SaaS is difficult because as a concept, the concept of not paying for performance but paying on a monthly basis because you're so advantageous. Like, you know, it's hard, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and you know, it's, again, it's not a Southeast Asia problem. It's like Indian founders are saying that, Chinese founders were saying that 10 years ago, like everybody kind of like 
it's just a dynamic of the market. I think where the, tr- the trickiness has come in is that I think I think where the problem comes in is that the choice about how to think about that margins in terms of your accounting standards, you could say, but also how and what you're optimizing for uh, as a founder and leadership team and as a board uh, really could do with some work, frankly. I think one of my biggest peeves I've seen so far um, is I think the definition of gross margin and contribution margin uh, has you know CM1, CM2, CM3, CM4. Is this a really, from my perspective, I find it a very difficult practice because I find like there's a certain dynamic which is like, how much do I actually earn from this? You know, not the GMV, the gross merchandise value, yeah, yeah. not this theoretical flow through through my platform, but what am I actually earning on a per customer basis that is due to me? That's my revenue, right? Not the flow through stuff. And then my contribution margin or my gross margin is they should be quite similar-ish. But this basically is like, you know, after taking away all the variable costs, how much do I have left to cover my fixed costs, right? right? My nut, right? And I think I would say, I know it sounds very simple when I say it, but just the number of teams I feel who have gotten into a tricky part where they define that badly because they're looking for, you know, big number good, small number bad. So, and they end up optimizing the company um, in a way that's suboptimal as a result, right? So they're like going for GMV growth or they're saying that we're going for top line revenue growth, but it's actually just flow through revenue, but they're not thinking through like, what does it take for the economics of the business? Right. And that's in a very tricky situation because again, suddenly you're running a business that is losing a lot of money perhaps or losing quite a bit of amount of money, which is a function of the fact that on a per customer basis, the unit economics are not working out well. Right. And then you take in money, you scale it out, and suddenly you're not losing a little bit of money per customer. You're losing a lot of money <laughs> across many customers. And maybe even on a per customer basis, the unit economics can get even worse, right? And that would be survivable if we were in a high capital liquidity environment, but Southeast Asia does not have that capital liquidity. And so you have very fragile companies where founders are very dependent on investors to give them that bridge round, the extension round. Uh, and I think that's so suboptimal for the founders in terms of control, in terms of economics, um, you, and suboptimal for the companies. Do you think that, and not just in Southeast Asia, but do you think that venture capitalists themselves are culpable at some level for that type of attitude? I mean, I don't think most founders understand finance at all because they've never been educated. You know, they didn't go to Wharton, most of them. And mm. they've been encouraged at least three or four years ago, for sure, just for top yeah. line growth. I mean, you look at the biggest companies in the region that have raised the yeah. most money. They're not yeah. even close to being profitable, nor do they have paths to profitability, at least from my view, right? And the original yeah. business that they're running have caused them to merge with other businesses that weren't making money for the exact mm. reason that you just said, because yeah. their unit economics are just aren't there. Yeah. But because they've raised so much money, they've also had to hire a ton of people. So their cost structure is completely out of whack, no? Yeah. VCs, founders, and the boards are 100% responsible for the strategic leadership uh, of every company, right? I think venture capital as an asset class exists because there's an understanding there's a certain amount of fixed upfront costs that has been invested in a good unit economics business model that eventually makes sense. And I think the best example of that would be ChatGPT, right? And OpenAI, right? So, you know, it took them hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital investment upfront. And for many years, it was at zero revenue. And then year one, they got $21 million of revenue. 
And then year two, they have a billion dollars of revenue, right? And so do you if you think for, about do it- Do you pay for it? Yeah. I do. Uh, yeah, same. And you know, I'm like amazing, right? Uh, and that tremendous network effects because when we pay for ChatGPT, we're also training ChatGPT. For sure. You know, yep. for, because so they're making money and they're getting free people to be Data. mechanical Turks to train them sure. and make the model smarter, right? And so I think that's a great example of a type of venture capital investment where it's okay to not be profitable for many years and then eventually kind of like have that path. But I think the phrase that you said is very key, the path to profitability, right? Yeah. So that requires a unit economics to work at some level, but there's the understanding there's a path to that over profitability. And I think the truth of the matter is that I think that that experimentation to get there, like every founder at the start, like if you're a seed stage founder, of course, you're figuring stuff out, right? Sure, and sure, sure. We had to figure out the part of profitability. Like, sure. of course, nobody knows. I'm not talking about seed, seed stage companies yeah. are just experiments. That's it. They're exactly. pure experiments. And when you raise 100%. seed stage money from angel investors, even from seed stage investors, yeah. they know they're investing in an experiment. Exactly. But once exactly. you get to series A, B, and C, these are growth investments, exactly. right? And it should be exactly. growth to profitability. Exactly. And I think that's the awkward reality then is uh, that's where the responsibility is, is that did you not understand a path of path of profitability because yeah. there isn't one at all? Right. Or is it because you weren't looking for it? Or because you thought there was one, but it turns out that you know your definition of path to profitability is this accounting standard different from what the actual right. uh, path to profitability is. Right. So there's a lot of self-inflicted mistakes that can happen, as you imagine, if yeah. you're just not being thoughtful about it. And it's so suboptimal because everybody is like, yeah, no, all of us are like sitting around the table and everyone's like, yeah, we all didn't want this to happen, but it happened. Right. <laughs> so, and then you're like, well, because what? I mean, if the, if the pandemic happened, that's a totally fair reason why right. it didn't happen, exogenous right? Exogenous event. But Can't exactly, it. exogenous events. And I think of the many startups where it happened to them. Uh, they had to pivot or they shut down and it's like totally fair. Right. But I think that it kind of goes back to like, did you exercise that? fiduciary duty and stewardship uh, to be like really thoughtful about that. And I think that's where I think a good board, you know, a good VC and a good founder working together can do something amazing because they make each other better. Which they should and do, that's right? The, as they should, yeah. Yeah. So what what is the status of companies actually exiting, right? I mean, if you're a venture capitalist, this is where you make most of the money, right? Mm. You invest in a company, whether it's at the earliest stages or even at the later stages, pre-IPO investing, whatever it is, the expectation is that somebody will come along and buy it, mm -hmm. right? That's at least what happens in the United States. We haven't seen really that many exits here yet. And like you said, mm -hmm. we started 10 years ago. It's not as mature as it is in the US, so fair enough. Yeah. What do you think the status of that is and where do you think it's going? And are we going to start getting more exits here? And to get there, what do you think we need to do? I was sitting and walking with a, a VC and the VC said something that I felt was a great way to describe it. Okay. And what the VC said was, I think we are too optimistic about Southeast Asia over the next 10 years and we're too pessimistic about Southeast Asia over the next 50 years. <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh, you know, and I felt, I, you know, that has really resonated with me. You know, obviously that may not qualify for you. Maybe you're, you know, out optimistic or pessimistic in different dimensions. But I think what struck me was, I think if we look at it over the next 50 years, I think like you mentioned earlier, I think the countries are focused on growth. In general, people have figured it out um, that there, for now, there's a certain element of stability, trade, free flow of talent. 
uh, that gives very strong macroeconomic demographic dynamics where if we keep doing what we need to do, all of us will continue to have economies that grow at five, six, seven percent. And uh, countries around the world, well, Europe, you know, America, that will kill to have that amount of growth. Uh, just kind of organically from people just working hard with each other. And, you know, imagine if all of us had great government as well, <laughs> then, you know, you could even have better outcomes like real infrastructure spend yeah. and real stuff, right? Yeah. You could even go higher, right? So I think over 50 years, you know, if you have an economy that's already growing 7% year and year, that's tremendous, right? And, you know, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and over a 50-year time frame, that compounding advantage is huge. I think the tricky part is that within a 10-year time frame from a venture capital perspective. Right. Because most funds are 10-year lifespans. Yeah, basically. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so you're trying to like, so can you grow a company that fast within 10 years? I think that's where a lot of thoughtfulness needs to happen, which is, you know, you know, I always remember there's a, you know, there's a Chinese idiom they say, right? You know, it's like, you know, all you know, all of the rice was growing, right? And then the farmer was impatient, right? So he's he started, so what he'll go is he'll go to all the plants and every day he would like pull up the rice plants a little bit because he wants them to grow taller, right? right. And he would do that every day. And then one day all of them died, right? Died, yeah. <laughs> because you really shouldn't be pulling your rice party, rice plants up, right? Early, right? And I think that's a good example, which is like, you know, I think for me, my perspective is I think there will be more exits over time because an exit is a function of healthy companies growing organically with a disciplined executive team that's solving real problems, right? Yeah. And so I think that will naturally happen as these companies grow. It's just that the growth of these companies, there's a certain level of organic growth level and we can accelerate it somewhat. Uh, but I think we just have to be thoughtful about which those situations are. So for me, I'm quite optimistic over a 50-year time frame. So, I just think sure. that let's not rush for the next 10 years, right? Because yeah. then we end up in situations where companies implode because they're actually solving a real problem. But then, you know, there's this mismanaged or, you know, goes in the wrong direction or way too capital inefficient. Yeah, I mean, my real strong belief here is that if you grow a company deliberately, yeah, right, as opposed to just trying to scale, this is why I hate this whole idea of blitzscaling. And I really wish those guys would stop talking about it. Because so cool. it's cool when it's not cool at the same time, right? Because it's like yeah. the market they were building into is not the market yeah. that exists today. And the yeah. dynamics are completely different, both from a financial yeah. standpoint, but also from a market development standpoint. Yeah. And every time they tell somebody to blitz scale, they're doing exactly what you just said. The Chinese have the best proverbs by far, right? And in Chinese, yeah. it's probably so subtle and so short. But this idea of pulling up those rice plants to try to get them taller because you're impatient to eat and then killing them in accidentally is just bad for every startup company. Okay, and the last thing, and then I'll let you go. What's the most fun part of your job? What's the thing that rewards you the most? You come home, you had such a great day, and you really just want to like sit with your family, your wife, and your kids, and you're just happy. I grew up as a kid loving science fiction, and I'm still a giant science fiction nerd. Uh, you know, you know, my wife and I was just watching Foundation last night, and I was like, man, so cool to have see Isaac Asimov, you know, and then it gets translated to the big screen and. Sure, you know, it's not the most faithful retelling of the Foundation series, but it's Foundation-inspired. I got I got that feeling of, like, you know, different dynamics, and it was just amazing to see that future, right? And, you know, for me, that the best science fiction has always been about not just, obviously, the technology, but also the people who are living with it, right? The dilemmas they're doing and how they're building it. It's a human story, right? And 
what I enjoy most as a result about a job is, you know, it feels like sci-fi every day, right? You know, uh, what I mean by that is I'm sitting on a founder and the founder's like, yeah, you know, I want to build this that transforms this using that, right? And I'm like, this is sci-fi, right? Every day I'm just dealing with that sci-fi nature. Um, and, you know, you know, individually is just an incredibly tough, also human, psychological, relational um, challenge um, that, you know, you get to be there for someone and help them think through that problem, right? Um, and I think I'm a big believer in this phrase, you know, it's like, you know, well, you pass the Chinese idioms, but, you know, the English one is the iron shop, it's iron, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think when you're able to sit down with a founder and, you know, they're at the top of their game and you're at the top of your game and you're having that very deep conversation about the business and we're just saying like, okay, and I remember having this conversation, I was like, okay, so I, what I'm hearing is that you're assuming this, 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 therefore that will happen. And he's like, okay, and you're assuming this is this, therefore it won't happen. And I'm like, okay, so we can agree to disagree on these assumptions. How would we figure out whether this assumption is true or not? Right. Like, what would be the fastest way for both of us to figure out whether, not who's right, who's wrong, because there's no value for being right or wrong, but you know whether that goes left or right changes the direction of the company of what you need to build, right? Yeah. And you know, and I was just like, is this so fun? Because it's like, you know, if this works, then lives will be changed and and I come home to my kids and my kids are three years old and one year old girl and I'm like you know you're going to live in the world that your dad helped invest in and help coach right you know and because I that's what I benefit from right I'm using video calls uh mics you know my shirt everything was built by a founder 10 20 years ago um, that received some level of capital from somebody who believed in them and then they went off to build a company and so, you know, I think it's just interesting where, you know, I think to myself, like, you know, I'm voting with my own time and dollars about a future that I would love for my children and my grandchildren to live in. Yeah, building the future is the most fun thing in the world to do. Jeremy Ao, an investor and the chief of staff at Monks Hill Ventures and the host of the Brave Southeast Asia podcast. Thanks for your views today, man. I hope you had as much fun as I did. A lot of fun.